1989, I arrived in Chicago for the first time on a road to discovering my new home. 30 years later, I'm leaving Chicago for the desert. I'm Don Hall. Welcome to Peculiar Journeys. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn So get those stakes up higher There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there They're all living the devil may care And I'm just a devil with love to spare So Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas And now it's daylight and so it's beautiful I mean, it's, I actually just saw a fucking tumbleweed. I saw a tumbleweed, man. I haven't seen a live, actual, for real in my face tumbleweed uh, since, like, college. There was nowhere to go but everywhere, so just keep on rolling under the stars from On the Road by Jack Kerouac. This week's episode concludes my epic 32-hour trip from Chicago to Las Vegas. We join me in the car at around four o'clock in the morning in Oklahoma. And frankly, I'm starting to lose the tightest control of my mind. I, I know I talk about come and go gas stations and the strange political landscape that somehow paints a diehard classic American liberal like me as anything but. By the way, come and go is just the worst fucking name for any establishment that does not involve fucking or jerking off. It just, you know, it's it's a terrible name for an establishment. So I'm just making that point. Come and go should not just involve gas and coffee, you, you know, but whatever. Um, just throwing that out there. Um, I'm a little punchy at this point, but uh, I'm not quite ready for a road nap. Um, just, uh, just got through Tulsa. Um, driving through Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's something exciting and I gotta tell you, I'm real. There's just something, even though it's dark, you know. I mean, I'm driving in the evening, you know. Every time I see the signs, um, when I drive through like more populated areas and see the lights of the city, it looks different. It's so different than the Midwest. It's got a completely different feel. Um, and it's just fucking thrilling. I find myself, you know, and I don't know, I mean, it's, it's almost cliche, you know, the idea that every mile I travel further from Chicago is, it's like shedding that skin. It's like, you know, I think that's kind of cliche, but it, it, the cliche is true on some level is, as I'm driving through, you know, the Midwest, and now I'm going into the Southwest, because I'm in Oklahoma, it, everything looks different. It feels different. Um, even though all I'm doing is driving on a highway at night. I'm thrilled. I'm getting so excited. Oh, Christ. I'm passing Oral Roberts University. I'm less excited. Okay? I'm less excited. I'm still excited. But yes, there is, you know, this is definitely different country uh, than... Uh, where I've been living for the past 30 years. One of the things that I know is going to be very interesting is that I know, you know, Las Vegas is, uh, from what I understand and what I've read, is sort of a 50-50 town, you know, when it comes to uh, uh, 
political affiliation, it's about 50-50, where, you know, about half of it is uh, almost exactly 50-50. Half of it is uh, Republican and half of it is uh, liberal. And uh, Chicago was almost entirely liberal. Um, so I'm curious to see how that you know, one of the things that I noticed, and I've noticed this in the last couple of years, really more, I want to say like 2015 on, um, that I used to think I was, you know, like extremely liberal and I was far, far left. But as the progressive, you know, sect, you know, the far, far left of America has become more vocal. And, uh, and more protest-oriented, you know, and, and a lot of it has to do with uh, Facebook, colleges, uh, you know, a need for safe spaces, a fear of offense, you know, the, 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 the ginning up of the concept of anything that is offensive is hate speech. Things have gotten a little out of control on that end. But I've discovered that while I'm a lot more centrist than I gave myself credit for, I'm certainly not at all conservative. I mean, there's not almost anything about me that's conservative. But because I, it was very interesting, uh, again, last night, hearing John at Bughouse describe my writing. And, you know, I mean, granted, he was wanting to beat me in a, a debate, so he was really positioning it. But I also know that from his end of it, this is the truth, is that he really sees me as this very conservative voice um, and, and the thing about it is the only thing I don't subscribe to is the stridency of identity politics um, the fear of offensive language or ideas um, I don't I'm, I'm not down with that I think that's a sect I think it's religion and uh, because it's what's what, but like it is I can be liberal on every single issue on the docket. I can, I and I am. I'm completely pro-civil rights. I am absolutely about equity of income, equity of opportunity, uh, you know, I, equality under the law. You know, I, 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 I want uh, Medicare for everyone. I want universal health care. Um, I care about the environment, and I want laws with all that in mind because I disagree fundamentally with the tactics of identity politics it automatically at least for this most strident left makes me a Nazi and I just find that to be quite ridiculous in preparation for a new location, I'd love to say that I'm adaptable, but being different and creating something unique is always a driving force for me. WNEP stood for what no one else produces, and while that approach rarely results in commercial success, certainly is fun. I think part of this comes from the fact that growing up, I was perpetually the new kid in school, in town, in my neighborhood, and the only way to stand out was to be extreme in some way. And also, I'm rarely the type embraced by the establishment. I recall a moment, probably the moment I knew I was done with going, with going about theater in a traditional way. I, I, music Theater of Wichita in Kansas was holding auditions for the children in a production of The Sound of Music. I wanted to be in that show. 
mom signed me up and in the estimation of 40 years of hindsight, I nailed it. I mean, I sure think I nailed it. I was in the running, at least. I was there all day, auditioned several times. By the time they whittled it down to 24 kids, I was cut because I wasn't blonde. Now, I understand now why that was the case, but then I was furious. It was unfair. I could wear a wig or dye my hair if I was the right actor, but I was eight, and what the fuck did I know, right? Combining that with my great aunt Vicky telling my mom at the time that we weren't invited to her church unless we had church clothes and my disdain for the normal, the conventional was sealed in a sarcastic smirk. The big differences, Dana is uh, certainly among the big differences um, because I have a wife who I think understands me in a way that uh, my other wives did not and I understand uh, in a way that I probably didn't understand my other two wives, either Deanna or Jen. Um, and we have a, it, it just, we do it just a different thing, different vibe. It's a different chemistry. Uh, we work very, very well together. We have a lot of fun. Uh, her strengths play of my weaknesses um, and vice versa. Obviously, uh, the biggest, to, to me, the biggest, the biggest difference between 1989 coming to Chicago and 2019 coming to Las Vegas is that I now, I'm 53, I now have 30 years of experience under my belt. When it comes to the creation of art, uh, arguably, I think I'm one of the better producers of live events that you'll ever meet in your life. Um, I've just done it so long and uh, have been so successful and, and I've fucked up so many times. So it's, uh, I think that plays to that. And I've always been very ambitious, so I'm pretty sure I'll be very ambitious when it comes to Las Vegas. I think ambitious for Las Vegas is gonna be a little different than what ambitious in Chicago looks like. Um, I'll still probably likely not be that concerned with making a lot of money. I'd like to make some more money. I mean, that's one of the things that I think Vegas has over Chicago is there is a lot of money in, in the entertainment industry, in the arts industry. There's, there's a lot of cash um, flowing around in Vegas for that very thing. Um, and not so much so with Chicago. So I'd like to be able to tap into some of that. But, you know, as always, my my goal is not so much to let's tap into what everybody else is doing and do it better. It's let's do that thing that nobody else is doing. Um, which reminds me of the story, and I've written about this before. But it reminds me of uh, when I was in Arizona. Um, when I was a kid, I had a friend, Tom Flaherty, and one summer... I think we were living in a trailer uh, then, and one summer, uh, you know, I noticed that everybody, all the kids, all across this tiny little, like, subdivision had lemonade stands, you know, and fruit punch stands, and that was how they were making money, you know, they were making money by selling drinks, and of course everybody wanted to support the kids, and of course they wanted to drink, you know, they wanted to have something to drink, because it's fucking Arizona, so it's hot. My brilliant idea was I wanted to open a pancake stand. There 
wasn't any money potential in it, but I thought, well, fuck, it's different, and who doesn't like pancakes? And so my mom made, like, a whole stack, I mean, like, probably 20 pancakes, and then Tom and I took them out in front of his yard, set up a table, and I danced on the table singing, and I never can remember, I never can remember the actual full lyrics to almost any song, so I would sing partial lyrics to, uh, you know, Jean, Jean, baby queen, prettiest girl I ever seen, see your face on the movie screen, Jimmy Dean, and that's all I knew of that song, you know, under the Saturday night, and I ain't got nobody, I got my money cause I just got paid, and that's all I know of that song. And so I would just sing these songs, hoping that somebody would notice and come buy pancakes. As I recall, we had a ton of fun. Tom and I ate all the fucking pancakes, and we didn't sell a single thing. But it was a great day, and uh, it was our way of saying, hey, we are different than all of the fucking rest, which, for good or ill, seems to be my... uh, one of my driving forces is to be different than all the rest. So we'll see what uh, what that looks like in Las Vegas. One of my favorite movies as a kid was The Cannonball Run. The idea of driving across the country in one shot with Dom DeLuise and Farrah Fawcett was about as romantic as an eight-year-old kid could hope for. Recently, in a series for Literate Ape, I started to dissect what I call problematic movies of the 80s. And of course, I had to rewatch Cannonball Run. And preparing to rewatch the Cannonball Run again after almost 40 years, I was surprised by a few things. First, the movie was written by Brock Yates, who is an actual participant in the actual Cannonball Baker's Cannonball Baker's Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash, a transnational 30-hour car race conceived by he and fellow car and driver editor Steve Smith. The first run was not a real competitive race, as there was only one team running, but intended both as a celebration of the United States interstate highway system and a protest against strict traffic laws coming to effect at the time. Second, the race had only one rule. All competitors will drive any vehicle of their choosing, over any route, at any speed they judge practical, between the starting point and destination. The competitor finishing with the lowest elapsed time is the winner. And finally, director Hal Needham was a former stunt driver turned director who solidified solidified his box office street cred from 1979's Smokey and the Bandit, and Yates drove the exact Dodge Tradesman ambulance in the 1979 race, and many of the moments Bert and Dom encountered in that movie were based upon true events. Now, I will tell you that the movie was not nearly as fun or even close to as good as my dumb kid brain remembered it, but I suppose the concept stuck with me because without really consciously deciding to make the drive from Chicago to Vegas in one solid run, suddenly 24 hours in, I realized that That was exactly what I was doing. And nowhere, seriously, nowhere in the Brock Yates movie is the realization that sitting in the car, driving the highway, catching road naps, and drinking buckets of shitty truck stop coffee would make you feel like you've been thrown around by a gorilla on a bunch of limestone rocks. All right, I'm 24 hours on the road. It is 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, I am in New Mexico, and goddamn... It is so beautiful here. This landscape is intense and wonderful. 
I can't stand it. I am so excited that I'm going to be living in the desert. I'm loving this shit. Um, I missed it, and uh, it's gorgeous and wonderful. I uh, just went through Albuquerque. I'm on my way through Gallup. I uh, just finished uh, a marathon of film spotting. Uh, I didn't listen to the last one because uh, they're, what are they doing? They're, they're reviewing Velvet Goldminer, Velvet something. Uh, it's a Jake Gyllenhaal movie. Anyway, and I haven't seen it yet. I want to watch it before I hear the review. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I've talked to my mom. I have had, in the last 24 hours, I've slept two. Um, I slept in Amarillo for an hour and then someplace before then. Whatever. Um, I'm loopy. My whole fucking body hurts. My joints hurt. My ass hurts. I can't decide if this was a badass idea to drive all the fucking way to Vegas in one shot or the dumbest fucking thing I ever thought of, but whatever it is, uh, I'm 53. When I was in college, I could pull this shit off and not even bounce, didn't have to bounce back. Uh, I was hungover when I started the trip <laughs> and I feel like, uh, I feel like I've been beaten to death, uh, but I'm still going. I'm still making it happen. Um, my eyes hurt. They're watering like crazy. Um, but, uh, you know, this is... It's as my mom said. This might be the last time I ever, you know, do something like this. Drive, you know, 32, 36 hours, whatever it ends up being. Um, in one shot to a new place, and uh, if, if that's the case, then this is a good it's a good chronicle of it, this is a good experience, um, yeah, this has been, this has been a trip, I'm about seven hours uh, away from Vegas, I talked to Dana, they're getting, you know, everything ready, uh, the one thing that I was a little concerned about was that our our stuff, the moving van, had not left by the time I left Chicago, but it has now left, so it should be, you know, in Vegas in a couple of days, which is great. Um, man, is this a beautiful landscape. It's just intensely lovely. Um, it makes me excited. Uh, you know, I was talking to mom, and that's one of the things I've spent the last 30 years in a, in a city that's just wall-to-wall people. They're just wall-to-wall people. Um, you know, I, I mean, I don't know what the, the statistics are, like how many people per square mile, but it's a lot. It's a fucking lot. And I'm now going to a city that has a sixth of its population, but four times the landmass. And that's really quite exciting. You know, it's, it's totally different. You know, I made the joke, it's, you know, it's, it's the desert surrounded by mountains, but... It's, it's a lot more, there's a lot more different to that than the weather. Um, I'm just very excited about that possibility. It's like, it's, it's, you know, I've gone from a huge city, you know, one of the third, well, I don't know, one of the largest metropolitan areas in the world, to <clears throat> a significant city, but, you know, population is only about 750,000. Um, and... That's kind of remarkable. Um, 
so I'm excited about that. I don't know if I have any stories at this point. I'm so tired. My brain is so addled. I mean, I'm, I may sleep one more hour. I mean, geez. Um, but I'm going to pull in. I'll pull into Vegas probably 10, 11 o'clock tonight. Um, they left the keys to the new house in the mailbox for me so I can get in and unload the car. And then Dana is staying in Samstown Casino, right, which is like right around the corner from our house. And so I'm going to, you know, dump all my stuff off. Oh, my voice is so fried. Dump all my stuff off um, and then walk over to Samstown, call her and take a shower and fucking crash. Um, but I'll be thrilled to see Dana. I can't wait to see her. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, we don't spend a lot of time apart. And so this has been a week. Uh, we can change. And so I'm very excited to, to see Dana. And uh, excited to see the new house. And really start to get into the groove of, you know, I mean, it, my guess is the first couple of weeks even... I mean, I've got interviews with uh, a number of people, but the first maybe two weeks are just going to be getting started, getting unpacked, getting the house normalized, getting that kind of, you know, um, you know I got to get a driver's license in Vegas. Uh, Dana still has her Pennsylvania license. She never lived in Chicago for 10 years, never got her Chicago license. She did, I don't know why she does it, that's her thing. I'm getting a Vegas license. I'm going to get my car, you know, my, my Vegas plates. I'm living there, I'm living there. Um, and so, you know, I've got to get that done and get all my stuff changed over. Oh my God, my voice is so fried. Well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I got more in a little while, but I don't know. Um, this one's going to be relatively short. Just beautiful, 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 beautiful. My grandfather was a machine gunnery sergeant in Patton's army, an oil rigger, a southern gentleman, and a take-no-prisoners man. My father, Stan Hall, who was only in the picture until I was about four years old, was the sort of man who believed the world owed him. He went to Vietnam, came home with a monkey on his back. After the stability offered by dear old dad came Dennis, stepfather number one of five, who was into style, a fashion-hungry, disco-dancing wife-beater who exerted his manhood by terrorizing and brutalizing those less able than he. He beat my mother and I until we stole away in the middle of the night with our worldly possessions stuffed into black, hefty bags. By the time Mom, my little sister, and I split at 3 a.m. from 2525 Wildwood Lane in Mom's brown 1973 Gremlin, I was done with the male role models as Mom was choosing for me. I was nine years old. My grandpa was the man. He was everything a man should be in an earnest Hemingway sort of way, bluntly, honest, dependable, hardworking, funny, and true to his word. His name was James Bowen, and he grew up during the Great Depression. He grew up dirt poor and valued sweat over money, effort over talent, and plain speak over the forced politeness most in the civilized world, civilized world expects. He'd seen the worst. I have a World War II Luger and a single bullet that was left to me by my grandma. When liberating the Polish Jews from a work camp, my grandfather was confronted by a rage-filled Polish man who was taking the opportunity to randomly shoot German soldiers, and my grandpa had to take the gun from him. The man took aim at my grandpa and almost shot him. When he finally turned the pistol and turned it in, his commanding officer, who had witnessed the moment, emptied the chamber of a single bullet and said, Bowen, this bullet has your name on it. 
This pistol and this bullet are yours. He was a funny man in a caustic way. He was also tough, a harsh father, and a genuine dyed-in-the-wool hard-ass. Contrary to the happy, crappy myths of the greatest generation, war scarred him. He battled his demons daily and made some huge mistakes in his life. When my unmarried mother came home pregnant, he kicked her out. He drank a lot and cursed a lot. And according to the stories, when he saw me in my then 16-year-old mother's arms, he melted. I became his charge, his opportunity to mold, his road to redemption, maybe. I don't know. His grandson. He really, he taught me basic people management skills. He taught me tarred mouth, which is southern for tired mouth, where he would sit me on the couch and tell me that the rules were simple. Whomever spoke first, lost. And he would sit across the room reading his paper. And every now and again, when he sensed I was about to crack, he'd look up at me, look panicked, and utter a grunt. Whoop! He could get me to sit for 40 minutes before he would lose the game. Somehow he always got the last word, even if it was, oops. From Grandpa Jay, I learned head rock. I'd go outside and throw rocks in the air and try to catch them with my skull. I learned pan dancing, where I was encouraged to dance on my grandmother's pans to make the most noise possible until I essentially passed out. He taught me the art of the practical joke, of learning to see beyond skin color and see the person inside. He instilled in me a dark sense of humor, an intolerance for stupidity, and aversion for excuses. He spoke his mind regardless of the consequences, and I'll carry that one to the grave. He drilled into my tiny pea brain the pointlessness of empty apologies, the honor of hard work, and the value of embracing and giving out second chances. One day, just a few months before he died of multiple heart attacks at the age of 58, he presented me with the most unlikely of objects, a book of poetry. In it, he had marked his favorite poem. It became, on that day, my favorite poem and continues to be a touchstone I go back to in times of personal doubt. It is, like the best poetry, a distillation of who he was and who I continue to strive to be. The poem, How Did You Die? by Edmund Vance Cook. Here's the poem. Did you tackle that trouble that came your way with a resolute heart and cheerful? Or hide your face from the light of day with a craven soul and fearful? Oh, a trouble's a ton, or a trouble's an ounce, or a trouble is what you make it. And it isn't the fact that you're hurt that counts, but only how did you take it? You're beaten to earth? Well, well, what's that? Come up with a smiling face. It's nothing against you to fall down flat, but to lie there, that's disgrace. The harder you're thrown, why the higher you bounce. Be proud of your blackened eye. It isn't the fact that you're licked that counts. It's how did you fight and why? And though you be done to the death, what then? If you battled the best you could, if you played your part in the world of men, why the critic will call it good. Death comes with a crawl or comes with a pounce, and whether he's slow or spry, it isn't the fact that you're dead that counts, but only how did you die? As I careened down the highways of New Mexico, I was overwhelmed by what the millennials call the feels. A lot of conflicting emotions started firing, and I couldn't tell if I was losing it due to exhaustion or if this was something to take note of. You know, I was thinking about this, as I'm driving through New Mexico and Arizona, all of this sensory, all this stuff from when I, when I was a kid is coming back. And I'm remembering how this particular part of the country made me feel. And one of the things that is associated, it's sort of like, you know that 
certain smells trigger feelings and certain sights trigger feel that kind of thing. Well, <clears throat> one of the most significant parts of the time that we lived in Arizona, which was third grade to like like the end of sixth grade, we moved back to Kansas uh, when I was in seventh grade. But during that time, uh, that was with my grandpa, Grandpa Jay. And uh, if you know me at all, you know that my grandfather, he died when I was 13, but he was effectively my father figure. Uh, Mom didn't have great choices of fathers for me. And Grandpa Jay was hard-bitten, World War II vet, machine gunnery sergeant for Patton, um, oil rigger, Southern black Irish gentleman, and uh, just a just a total roughneck, and loved that man. And he was just got goddamn it, he had the meanest sense of humor, but funnier than hell. Anyway, when he retired, what he wanted to do is live in the fucking desert, and he bought uh, he had a GMC Jimmy, and he bought a, a, a camper, not a trailer, but a camper. And he and my grandma Betty hopped in that camper and they drove to KOA camps and stayed in KOA camps all around Arizona. They ended up landing near Phoenix, um, which is ultimately, I don't know the circumstances of why we ended up moving specifically. I mean, you know, obviously it was so that I could be around my grandparents. Maybe mom needed some financial help. I don't remember. I don't, I wasn't privy to that decision. <coughs> but. When we lived in Arizona, I got to spend all kinds of time with my grandpa. Mom would be working, Grandma Betty would be working, Grandpa Jay and I would sit in that fucking trailer out in the desert with his Alaskan Husky Colonel and just get up to all kinds of trouble, really. Um, and so, as I'm driving through New Mexico and Arizona and I'm seeing the desert seeing the scrub and I'm seeing the just the, the, the general land it just gives me this really lovely feeling like I'm reconnecting with my grandpa in some way and I hadn't really thought about that until I was in the maybe just because I'm fucking sleep deprived but it, it's kind of a really I mean it's a, it's a, a concomitant benefit to this move that I had not expected, um, and I'm, I'm quite pleased with that. It is neat. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not retiring. But the interesting thing about it is now that I, now I'm, while I'm putting all this together, uh, my grandpa Jay moved out here with my grandma Betty, probably when he was around, like. 53 years old or somewhere around there because he was they were here for not they were here for a full decade before he died um he moved we moved back to Kansas for one year and during that one year he died at 58 so I'm thinking I'm effectively the same age as my grandpa Jay when he lived in Arizona um, in the desert, I'm going to be in Vegas, but it's it's you know the Southwest United States. That's fucking weird. 
I don't even know how I feel about it. Um, I hope I don't die when I'm 58. I mean, certainly. But uh, I just think it's very interesting that I'm basically my grandfather's age when he moved to the desert. Um, And I'm not quite sure what that says, but I like the serendipity of it. I called my mom as I was heading toward Flagstaff. Once I assured her I was fine, tired, but fine. I asked her when Grandpa Jay retired to the desert. She couldn't quite remember exactly, but we agreed it was likely around 51 or 52. And then she talked a bit about how much he loved the desert, how much he loved the Southwest, the weather, the art, the feel. It was a really good phone call. As I made my final nighttime approach, as I rode through mountains I could sense but couldn't see, I finally crested and saw the lights of my new home. Lit up like a city my mom made at Christmas, just as I started down into the valley, I saw something extraordinary about a quarter mile in front of me. A giant golden Buddha, shining with a surrounding red light, floating down the highway toward Las Vegas. It was massive, And I assumed, hey, it's Vegas, probably a giant Cirque du Soleil prop being transported or something like that. I can still see him as clearly now as then. And I followed this golden Buddha because apparently he was going to the same place as I. I was too tired to take a picture, but I wanted to see exactly how large this Buddha statue was. So I sped up just a bit. As I grew closer, the red light washing him from behind and backlighting him got brighter and I realized that this golden Buddha was really only the taillights of a U-Haul truck. I slowed down and knew that A, the golden Buddha must be my welcoming committee, and B, I needed to get off the road very soon before I imagined a ditch to be a turnoff or something. I slipped into the dr- I slipped into the driveway of the house Matthew bought at around 10:30 p.m. and texted Dana. I unloaded the Prius, took a look at the house, And Dana came and took me to the hotel where I showered and crashed. I had made it. I have made it. Now I need to figure out what the hell I'm going to do here. Reinvention has been an art of who I am since my beginnings. And what I keep and who I discard will be something discovered over some time baking in the desert, seeking my golden Buddha. I'm gonna have me some fun if it cost me my very last dime. If I wind up broke, well, I'll always remember. Peculiar Journeys is a storytelling podcast. For previous seasons, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or online at donhall.vegas slash podcast. To support Peculiar Journeys, please review the show on Apple Podcasts, share it with your friends or on social media, or go to patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and become a VIP patron by tossing me a few bucks. Thanks for listening. Let's make it.